0: your presence with praise we thank you that you are jehovah shalom the god of peace and lord how we need that peace that passes all understanding that you alone can provide for us we thank you father and praise you that you are jehovah rafa the lord that heals that you not only heal us spiritually which is the most important healing but you that you can be the one to heal us emotionally and mentally and Um, even physically, as we'll see today as you healed the man with the dropsy. And, Lord, we thank you that of you and through you and to you are all things. And to you alone, therefore, goes the glory. And we want to glorify you. We want to magnify your name. We want to praise you for who you are, a God of love and mercy and grace and compassion and holiness and justice that you are the god who revealed yourself to man through your son the lord jesus christ the good shepherd the great shepherd the chief shepherd the one who defeated death and satan on our behalf the resurrection and the life we thank you for our resident teacher the holy spirit we um, ask that he would have his will and way in every heart today i pray that you would bless the study, the reading, and the study of your word this morning. Lord, that each of us would do a self-examination as we need to do every time we look into the mirror of your word, and that we would repent of the sins that we see revealed there in our own hearts. We know the heart is desperately wicked and it's deceitful. We sometimes have a difficult time examining our own hearts, but Lord, help us to constantly die to self to be humble, to see ourselves in light of your holiness and your righteousness, to die to pride, to kill the critical spirits within us, and those sins of omission, Father, that we all commit, not witnessing, not praying enough, Lord, good doing good things that we omit to do when we know we should do them because to not do that which we know is right to do is sin and father we just ask also that you would apply what we learn today to our lives that we would not just be hearers of the word but that we would be doers also that we would yield to what the spirit has to teach us we would yield to what the spirit has to convict us about and to heal us of A lot of us need your healing power. Father, to sanctify us, to make us more like your son as we look at him, that we might grow day by day more into his image. And he's so perfect. What a standard you have given to us. What an example of humility you have given to us. Father, we just ask now that you would still our hearts and our minds, that we truly might focus on your word and what your word has to tell us about your son. In whose wonderful, glorious name we do ask. Amen. Okay, we will be looking this morning at verses 1 to 24. Today's lesson occurred chronologically somewhere between the Feast of Dedication, which occurred in the winter of the year at Christmas time, also known as Hanukkah, and the Feast of Passover, which of course occurs in the spring of the year. And this would be the spring of the Lord's last year of public ministry and we have learned from our recent studies that he was where in the province of Korea thank you where he had found his greatest spiritual fruit. And now he is slowly but steadily heading toward Jerusalem. Although we'll find when we get over into Luke chapter seventeen that he doesn't just cut across from Perea to Jerusalem. He actually works his way, if you look at a map at the back of your books, he works his way up north into uh through Perea and Decapolis, and then he cuts over going west right along the border of Galilee and Samaria, and then he probably joins a caravan of pilgrims coming down from that area, Galilee and Samaria, joins them as he comes from the north down to Jerusalem, exactly at the time that he needs to be there at the time of the Passover. So he takes a long cut to get there, but he is heading toward Jerusalem. So there is likely only about one to one and a half months left before his passion week, which ended, of course, with his crucifixion, which ended, of course, with his resurrection, or you and I wouldn't even be here today. Now, as you can tell by the title for this lesson, which is instruction at a Pharisee's table, the setting for all that we're going to be discussing today was in the home of a Pharisee. Very good. In fact, he was a chief Pharisee. You see that in verse 1 of chapter 14. And what day of the week was it? Anybody take a peek? Look, it was the Sabbath. Now, I would like to think that this particular Pharisee, who was a prominent man, otherwise he wouldn't be called a chief Pharisee, I would like to think that he invited Jesus to eat with him. Perhaps they'd gone to the synagogue that morning and he invited him over for, you know, lunch after church. That he was doing this so as to... um, be more drawn to Jesus and to learn something from him. You know, I I would like to think that he was a good Pharisee, like we gave the benefit of the doubt, you know, last week to those Pharisees that warned Jesus to leave Perea because Herod wanted to kill him. I'd like to think that this was a good Pharisee, and that's why I invited the Lord to his house. However, unfortunately, there are several key factors that indicate to me that this prominent Pharisee had invited Jesus to his home to find fault with him. In fact, it looks like this man and his co-conspirators, because there were other guests invited to this meal, which included probably some wealthy people in whatever city this was or town, and um, other Pharisees and lawyers, which are also called scribes. So it looks like this man and his co-conspirators had purposely um, invited Jesus to the house in order to ensnare him. It looks even like they had planted a very sick man. It said that the, the man had dropsy. Now, that doesn't mean he dropped a lot of things. <laughs> dropsy was an, a very painful ailment of the liver which um, involved, I guess, your ab- the abdomen would become full of um, fluid. That's what I could learn about it reading that description. But it was, uh, it, it was something to do with fluid retention. And in the abdomen, they actually said it was a liver disorder, and it was extremely painful. This man had that disease. And very, it looks like they planted this man in the vicinity of the Pharisees' courtyard, his outer courtyard, so they they could watch what Jesus would do. You know, remember, it's the Sabbath. And by now, these fellows know that the Lord's compassion was such that he couldn't be in the presence of suffering human suffering very long without doing something about it so they figured that jesus would heal the man and they could then nab him for doing a work on the sabbath you know that they could accuse him of being a sabbath breaker now why they needed one more healing on the sabbath i don't know because he'd already done many but it looks like this was a trap now another key to discovering this man's true motive is in the meaning behind the greek word that is used um, for where they watched him in verse 1. I know I haven't read it. I will. Well, let me just read that verse. And it came to pass as he went into the house of one of the chief Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath day that they watched him. Now, the Greek word tells us that this was a sinister watching. It was a watching with an evil purpose. It was, it's a word that was used in the sense of watchful espionage. It's the same word that was used back in Mark 3, 2, where it says, And they, the religious leaders, watched him, Jesus, whether he would heal him. And there it was speaking about the man with the withered hand. They watched him to see if Jesus would heal him on the Sabbath day that they might accuse him. So it was a bad kind of watching. They're watching him. Under the guise of Jewish hospitality, this was simply another trap. But like all of the other traps, how do you think it ends? In utter failure. He totally turns the tables on them. You know, it's too bad that there are so many people like this chief Pharisee and his friends who watch Jesus with critical eyes. A lot of people out there watching him with cynical, critical, sinister eyes. They're just intent on finding something that they can claim as either an error in the scripture or as a fault in Jesus Christ so they come up with all these crazy things don't they the world they they look at him they look at the word of God with critical eyes and they say that's why they say that you know he had an affair with Mary Magdalene and that he was uh, a homosexual and all these insane crazy things that they come up with they feel that if they can find either an error in the scripture or some wrong in the Lord's behavior, then they can deny his claim on their lives. And then they think, then they're free to live their lives just as they want. But they're really living in bondage, aren't they? They're living in bondage to sin, to Satan, to the world, and to their own flesh. The critical thing that they should be doing that they're not doing is watching him as you and I are doing this morning I hope we all are watching him to learn of him and to learn from him that's the right kind of watching to do when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ but they weren't doing that right kind of watching now it's interesting to learn that the events of and following Luke chapter 14 contain for us the record of the last the last sabbath in the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ prior to his arrival in Jerusalem for the Passover. Now, there are there is another Sabbath that will be given to us, and it will be the Sabbath right before his um, crucifixion when he's anointed, or right before he uh, wow. Palm Sunday when he goes into Jerusalem to officially proclaim himself to be the Messiah. And on that last Sabbath is when Mary of Bethany anointed him, you know, with her expensive... Uh, alabaster box of spikenard perfume. But uh, this is the last Sabbath prior to the Passion Week. Now, the events of this Sabbath are going to carry us all the way through Luke 17:11, And so we'll be on this day for a while. We're going to be looking at four parts of our outline for this morning. We're going to look at the Lord instructing these religious rulers about Sabbath hypocrisy, a subject we've talked about many times. He's going to then instruct, them. this is really interesting, (laughs) he instructs the other guests now, how'd, how'd you like to invite somebody to your home? And not only does he criticize you as the host, but then he turns on all the other guests and he, and he criticizes them. But they needed criticism, and so he's going to his, instruct his, the other guests about having sincere humility. And then he's going to instruct his host about his selfish hospitality. And last of all, he's going to instruct an an unidentified man about salvation hindrances. We have a lot to cover, and I hope I can talk fast enough. Let's look at verses 1 to 6, okay, to begin with. This is where he instructs the religious leaders about Sabbath hypocrisy. It says, And it came to pass as he went into the house of one of the chief priests to eat bread on the Sabbath day that they watched him. And behold, there was a certain man before him which had the dropsy. And Jesus answering spake unto the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? And they held their peace. And he took him, that's the man with the dropsy, and healed him and let him go, and answered them, saying, Which of you shall have an ass or an ox fallen into a pit and will not straightway pull him out on the Sabbath day? And notice this. Again, they're quiet. And they could not answer him again to these things. Well, probably prior to the actual meal being served at this Pharisee's home, the guests of the Pharisee would mingle. This was common. A lot of times they even ate out in a courtyard. So before the meal, it looks like the guests are mingling out in the man's courtyard, and it was likely here, rather than when they were actually seated at the table for the meal, that, behold, a certain man appeared before the Lord who had the dropsy. This poor, suffering man, with this liver ailment, this water um, disease, either worked his own way into the Pharisees' outer courtyard so as to be healed by Jesus, or he was purposely planted there, as we've already speculated. In either case, there was a serious failure on the part of the host and his other guests to see the need of this dropsy man and, and reach out to him. They were insensitive. We've already learned this many times. They were insensitive to the, those who suffered and those who were the outcasts of society. And they would oftentimes use them for their own selfish purposes, as they used um, the adulterous woman caught in the very act of adultery, as they um, wanted to use the blind man, and as they're trying to use this man with dropsy. Notice how we are told that the host, the chief Pharisee, and his guests watched Jesus in verse 1 before we are then told in verse 2... And behold, there was a man before him with the dropsy. That seems to indicate to us that they knew ahead of time to be watching Jesus because they knew the man with dropsy was out there and uh, they wanted to watch him to see that he would heal him and then they could say, you're a Sabbath breaker, whatever good that would do. Because he always, even if they, you know, we're going to try to stone him to death, he always managed to escape from them, didn't he? wasn't his time well the Lord of course being omniscient all-knowing God knew their malicious design and so we are told in verse 3 that he answered them by asking a question he said is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day now it's interesting that scripture says that Jesus answered the lawyers and the Pharisees because look look at those previous verses had they asked him any question no no Never says that they asked him a previous question. Yet, he answered them. Now, why is that? Because he knew what they were thinking and what their motivation was. He knew why that he, they had invited him that day to dinner. They, he knew how closely they were watching him with a sinister purpose. And he knew why the man with dropsy had been planted where he couldn't help but see him. In fact, through Jeremiah the prophet—this is interesting— Jesus actually predicted this kind of, this very kind of reaction of watching to catch him and trying to entice him by those who were his familiars, his fellow Jews. It's interesting, if you want to turn to Jeremiah 20 and look with me at, I believe it's verses 11, 12, maybe 10, 11, 12. This was predicted by the Lord himself, this watchfulness of Jesus With an evil intent. He says, All my familiars, now this is the Lord speaking through Jeremiah, all my familiars, those who are familiar with me, those who are my own people, the Jews, watched for my halting. In other words, they watched for him to trip up, saying, Peradventure, he will be enticed, and we shall prevail against him, and we shall take our revenge on him. But he goes on and says, but the Lord is with me. Therefore, my persecutors shall stumble, and they shall not prevail. They shall be greatly ashamed, for they shall not prosper, and their everlasting confusion shall never be forgotten, end of quote. So that's interesting. He predicted all of this. That they would be out to get him, they would be watching with an evil intent, but they would always be the ones who wouldn't prevail. They would be the ones who were shamed, and their confusion, whenever he was around, would be never forgotten. Isn't that true? Because aren't you and I, 2,000 years later, studying their confusion, it's still not forgotten. So, Jesus answered. Now, he answered not a verbal question that was put to him, but he answered the action and the motive that was behind those who set the bait to ensnare him. And the question was, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, which was the very weapon, really, that they were planning to use against him. But he beat them to the punch (laughs) by asking the question first. So he's therefore putting them, not himself, in an unanswerable dilemma. You see, if they said that they believed it was not lawful to ever, ever heal on the Sabbath day, then they would be accused by the common people of being heartless. You know, never, ever heal on the Sabbath day. They're totally heartless and greatly lacking in compassion, which was the truth, wasn't it? And that's why the people like Jesus, you know, because they compared him to them and they saw how compassionate he was. But this wouldn't help their cause at all if they said, no, it's never right to heal on the Sabbath day. On the other hand, if any one of them dared to say, yes, it is lawful to heal on the Sabbath, then don't you know that all the others would jump on him and say, like they did with Nicodemus, when he came to the Lord's defense and they'd say, what, are you a Galilean too? You know, they, they wouldn't, they didn't want to take take a risk of being uh, charged of disloyalty. You know, it was peer pressure kind of thing. So not one of them would dare to risk being ostracized or uh, desynagogued by their peers. So none of them are going to say yes, there are some exceptions when you can heal on the Sabbath. So the chief Pharisee and his fellow scribes and other Pharisees did what they often did when they were confronted by the Lord Jesus Christ. What was that? They just stood there In total silence, (laughs) they didn't dare say a word. It says, and they held their peace. Just like Jeremiah had predicted, they stood shamed. They did not prevail against him. They knew in their hearts that God's law did, in fact, allow for works of mercy and works of necessity and works of worship to be performed on the Sabbath day. So, in his seventh day and final sabbath day miracle isn't it interesting did you ever know that jesus healed seven times on the sabbath day isn't that perfect isn't that complete shouldn't we have known that (laughs) his seventh and final sabbath day miracle took he took the man with the dropsy he healed him and then he let him go do you know what his other sabbath day healings were i'll review for you He healed, first of all, this is in Luke 4, he healed a man with an unclean spirit. In other words, he healed a demoniac, a man who was possessed by a demon. He also, in Luke 4, healed Peter's mother-in-law. Remember, when she had been stricken with a high fever and all of a sudden, and that was demonically induced, we learned. And then he healed the impotent man at the pool of Bethesda, a man who had laid there impotent for 38 long years on the Sabbath. And then in Luke 6, he healed the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath day. In John 9, he healed the man who had been born blind. In Luke 13, we just talked about this a few weeks ago, he healed the woman who had been bent over for 18 long years. And then today we have the seventh Sabbath day healing when he healed the man with dropsy. You see, seven is the biblical number for what? Perfection. And completion, his absolute power and authority over the Sabbath was being demonstrated as being both perfect and complete. In fact, he is the Lord of the Sabbath, is he not? He is. Jesus demonstrated that everything he said and everything he did, by everything he said and did, that the very purpose of God is the healing of man. Not only does he heal man from from his bondage to Satan, such as when he healed the demoniac and poor Peter's mother-in-law, uh, he heals man from his impotence to do anything to help himself, like the man who laid there at the pool of Bethesda, totally impotent, could nothing he could do to help himself. He heals man from his uh, withered inability to pull himself up. You know, we're totally impotent incapable of pulling ourselves up we need him to reach down into the pit where we are and pull us up don't we as he healed the man with the withered hand his uh he heals us from our spiritual blindness as he healed the man who had been born blind he heals us from the weight you know of the sin and the guilt that is so heavy on our backs that were like in a bent over position such as the woman who was bent over for eighteen years and he heals us from the pain of these ailing decaying sick bodies as this man with with uh, the dropsy so what he's showing is that he heals the whole man his healing is complete and it's perfect seven sabbath day healings and it's interesting as i look back at those i saw that uh, several of them were performed in galilee Several of them were performed in Jerusalem of Judea. Uh, one was performed in Perea. So again, you see the whole picture there. Some were men who were healed and some who were, were women who were healed. So we get a complete picture of the healing of all of mankind, or at least those who are willing to come to him. Well, in verse 5, we're told that the, while the host and the others were saying nothing, just standing there speechless, Christ again answered them. Now, they hadn't said anything, had they? (laughs) But he answered their second non-asked question with another question. He was so good at asking questions. And here's his second question. Which of you shall have an ass or an ox fallen into a pit and will not straightway pull him out on the Sabbath day? That's similar, very similar to what he had said to that indignant synagogue ruler uh, on the day that he had healed Let's see, what was it? That was, I think, the day he had healed the, the bent-over woman in the synagogue. And remember, the ruler of the synagogue got all bent out of shape. He was the one bent <laughs> more than she did. She got healed. But he was bent out of shape. Why did you do this on the Sabbath day? You know, why couldn't you come back and heal her on another day of the week? And he had said to that man, Thou hypocrite, doth not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or his ass from the stall and lead him away to watering? As essentially what he's saying here, you know, if, you, if it's Sabbath day or not, if your animal, which is valuable to you, is really thirsty, you're going to loose him and take him to the water, you know, the drinking trough. Jesus knew that not one of these self-righteous religious religionists would hesitate at all to rescue one of their own animals if it fell on the Sabbath day into one of the many open cisterns or wells in Israel. There were many open cisterns and wells, you know, you had to be careful walking through the land. So if one of their animals fell on the Sabbath day into one of those pits, what would they do? They would quickly, you know, have a rescue operation. And such a rescue would not be considered by them as a breach of the Sabbath law regarding work because they knew it would be called a work of mercy or a work of necessity. So Jesus was merely, once again, exposing the hypocrisy of such men who pretended to be so piously concerned about God's law and defending it when the truth of the matter was that they were denying the very God who they professed to love and they were denying him by by not loving their fellow man, by not loving their neighbor, not even um, their fellow Jews did they love. You know, these religious leaders looked down their noses at even the common Jewish people much less um, people suffering like this man with the dropsy or the man born blind, etc., much, you know, much less Samaritans and Galileans, oh my goodness. They would show more mercy to their own animals than they would to their fellow man. And don't we have people like that in abundance in the world today? We do. The Animal lovers. And I love animals. Nothing against the animal world. But they love and they treat animals better than they do. Babies in the womb, for example. They also denied the God they professed to serve, of course, by rejecting his son. The ones they were really serving was, were themselves. Their, their priority was to preserve at all costs, even if it meant rejecting the one who met all the messianic credentials, their purpose was to preserve their traditions and their positions of prominence and wealth, their wealth over the people. So they were inconsistent. They were inconsistent in their behavior and in their belief. If any one of them would quickly set aside the religious rule of the Sabbath to help their ox or their ass, then why should a man, a man with a hum, you know, a, a soul an eternal soul, why should uh, he be neglected? So once again, they didn't have an answer. There was nothing. What could they say in their defense? So again, we're told that they could not answer him to these things. And again, we see Jeremiah 20 fulfilled. You know, they, they, it's, Jesus had said, they will be greatly ashamed for they shall not prosper. And here we see it. They didn't prosper, and we're still remembering their confusion. Well, apparently it was at this awkward moment for the host that he bid his guests to sit to the meal, you know, at the meal to which he had invited them. And now it's the Lord's turn to do the observation. He watched the guests as they scurried and scrambled and jockeyed and pushed and shoved for, what do you think? the seats of honor at the meal so ridiculous anyway also already having given them instruction on their hypocrisy now he goes ahead and he opens his mouth to give them instruction regarding this matter of humility so let's look at verses 7 to 11 what he has to say to the other guests it says and he put forth a parable to those which were bidden that was bidden to the meal when he marked, or, or watched, how they chose out the chief rooms, saying unto them, now here's his parable, When thou art bidden of any man to a wedding, sit not down in the highest room, lest a more honorable man than thou be bidden of him, and he that bade thee, which was the, would be the host, and him, the more honorable man, come and say to thee, Give this man place, and thou... Begin with shame to take the lowest room. But when thou art bidden, go and sit down in the lowest room, that when he that bade thee cometh, he may say unto thee, Friend, go up higher. Then shalt thou have worship in the presence of them that sit at meat with thee. For whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted." All right, so it's time for everyone to be seated for the meal. And, and notice how some of the guests, or most of the guests, I guess, scrambled for the chief seats, and Jesus marked them. He watched them. Now, that Greek word for mark is used only five times in the New Testament, and it means that he gave special attention. He was watching. You know, Jesus sees everything. God sees it all. He's always watching, no matter what we do you know, even when we're at our tables, (laughs) and he was watching them. And in Jesus' day, the highest seat of honor was on the right of the host. And the second highest seat was where? On the left of the host. Now, this is why James and John, you know, remember, wanted those seats when the Lord came into his kingdom, and they even sent their mother to ask for those particular seats. Uh, And then the ranking would continue, Alter alternating back and forth, the right, you know, the next closest to the host on down the line so that the one who was the farthest from the host was in the lowest seat. So very simply, the closer you sat to the host, the higher the honor. Now, the phrase, the chief rooms, you notice the word rooms, that's a little confusing. Well, now, sometimes the houses actually had elevated rooms, little rooms, little platforms that went up higher and higher, like I'm up here on a platform. And, you know, they would... Well, you know, they always chose this, they wanted the chief seats in the synagogues because there was a higher platform, and they wanted to be up here and facing, you know, facing the people and showing that they were the big mucky mucks. So, but the chief rooms is the word um, in Greek, which literally means first reclining places. Now, you know when they ate, they would recline. They, they were in a reclining position and they'd be leaning on their left elbow and eating with their, uh, I mean, on their, their left arm and then eating with their right hand. And a lot of times they would be seated in what was called a triclinium where there was a table like in a U shape. One man would be reclining in this side and one on this side and then the man who got the seat that reclined in the middle was the guest of honor at that one triclinium. So depending on how many guests you had, let's say you had 15 guests, you'd make five of those little triclinia, (laughs) and um, the one who would be in the center of all of them, let's say there's a table in the middle and then four on the corners, the center man of the center table would be the chief host. So they had different ways of seating. I mean, he would be the chief guest. But I don't know how this man's situation was set up, but everybody, you know, as soon as the dinner bell rang, they all ran for the chief seats. (laughs) And, I get, you know, they didn't have name placards, I guess, back in those days. And so it was common for the guests to seat themselves. And pride, of course, always scrambled for the seat of highest honor. Now, especially interested in the seats of highest honor were the religious rulers, the scribes and the Pharisees. Several times in our study, we find that Jesus publicly denounced them for their love, not only for the chief seats at feasts, such as this, but also, as I said, the chief seats in the synagogues. These leaders, unfortunately, were far more interested in high places than they were in high characters. What have we said before? They're more interested in their reputation than they are in their, their character. And unfortunately, every age has many people who have, you know, the name preference to the integrity preference. So many people out there who want to make a name for themselves and are not concerned at all about having character and integrity, are they? We see politicians maneuvering constantly, manipulating. Uh, for the spotlight we have executives who don't care who they climb over as they climb up the executive ladder we see even you know go to walmart (laughs) and see people who cut in line or push and shove and everybody wants to be a somebody without taking the time to develop their character so that they are a somebody in god's eyes right i mean hollywood is full of names that have no character behind the names Anyway, so, as was uh, frequently his custom, Jesus taught on um, the divine principle about true humility by way of a parable. And this parable is known as the parable of the seats at a wedding feast. It has also been called the parable of the ambitious guest. And basically, he, um, he was teaching that when you're invited, for example, to a wedding feast, don't Run for the most honorable seat. Now, I guess that could be, let's say, at the um, at the rehearsal, uh, not the rehearsal dinner. What's what's the after the wedding called? Reception. There might be a head table. Wouldn't it be something if we all rushed to be at the head table, and plop right down to the next to the bride and the groom, and we had no business being there? He's saying, don't do that because you might really be embarrassed when the host comes along and says. What in the world are you doing at the head table? (laughs) You're not even related. (laughs) And removes you to, well, let's see, all the other seats are, so you have to go sit by the door way in the back somewhere because all the other seats are already taken. He's saying, don't do that because if you try to exalt yourself, you're going to be brought down. You're going to be shamed. What's he say there in verse 11? For whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. He that humbleth himself shall be exalted. So what he says, his advice is that when you're bidden to the feast, go in and take the lowest seat. And then, peradventure, the host comes and sees you at the lowest seat, all there by your little lonesome by the door, you know, or the the air conditioner is coming down on you and you're freezing and he'll say oh what are you doing there you need to be up front and he takes you and puts you up in the in a in a place of prominence you know that would be but we have to be careful that we're you know he's not teaching us a little gimmick you know because false humility is just is just as hateful to god as pride So you don't run in and take the lowest seat so that you look like you're so pious, right? And then hope that somebody will lift you up and put you in at the head table. You don't do it out of false humility. You need to do it because of true humility. Um, The truly humble person takes the lowest place because he really knows it's the place where he belongs. He honestly, honestly, in his heart, feels like he belongs there. That's the kind of humility we saw displayed by Job when he saw himself and said, I'm a vile person. That's the kind of humility we see in Paul when he said, I am the what of sinners? The chief of sinners. The genuinely humble person is going to think that any seat and any recognition, and any type of good. You know, just to be invited to the banquet is good enough for him. He's just happy he's there. In lowliness of mind, what are we to do? In lowliness of mind, each of us is to esteem others better than ourselves. You know, it's dying to self, dying to self. Humility is simply one of those things that you just can't brag about having, is it? You know, you can't, you can't say, well, I have the gift of humility, because if you brag about it, you don't have it. For if a man thinketh himself to be something when he is nothing, what does he do? He deceives himself, Galatians 6.3. It has been said, and rightly so, that humility is not thinking lowly or meanly of yourself. It's not like beating yourself and saying, I'm a no-good, you know, person, and, and hating yourself. That's not genuine humility. Genuine humility is really not even thinking of yourself at all. Where you, you you know, you're not even, you're just so concerned about others that you're, that's how Jesus was. Wasn't he our perfect example of humility incarnate? He, I don't think he ever thought of himself. He always was thinking about others. So true humility is not even thinking of yourself at all. You've died to self. I don't even exist you know except to serve him humility really comes from three things and these are found in william Barclay's, um book on galatians and ephesians humility comes from measuring ourselves against the lord jesus you know when a man or a woman measures himself or herself against christ he measures himself against perfection and how do we measure up when we're measured against perfection you know christ was without sin when we measure ourselves against other men and women, we, we can, you know, say, well, we can look at the worst ones <laughs> and say, well, I'm, you know, this teeter-totter thing, I'm better than that person, so and then we can kind of get puffed up. But when we measure ourselves against Christ, all of us fall far short of his glory. And uh, against such a one as him, there just simply isn't any room for pride, is there? I know that the more I look at his life and every word and every deed he said and committed, the more I see myself falling short of all that he did. And that produces humility, genuine humility. Another thing that produces humility is to continue in the consciousness of God's presence. No man has anything in reality, not Not the air we breathe, not the food we eat, not clothing, nothing. All we have and all we know is going to one day deteriorate and decay or be burnt up. We are completely, totally dependent upon God, who has given all to us, you know, of him and through him and to him are all things. Have you ever thought about that verse? Of him. That means everything comes from him. Of him and through him. Anything we do is through him, through his power of him and through him. And ultimately to him, because it all goes back to him, the glory and everything are all things to whom glory alone belongs. So we're completely dependent on God and before him, therefore, you know, when we measure ourselves against Christ and we're continuously aware of God's presence, we can't do anything but walk humbly. Third, humility comes from knowing ourselves. The heart is desperately wicked, isn't it? Deceitful uh, deceitful above all things. When we really give an honest appraisal of ourselves, and sometimes it takes a lot of courage (laughs) to do that, to look at ourselves, and it takes honesty to see ourselves as we really are. Until we do that, we can't really be humble. But when we genuinely look at ourselves and see how self-centered we really are, and you know how we're all just really a bundle of self-admiration and self-love, until we die to self and examine ourselves and see ourselves in light of, of Christ, we can't be humble. So really, what we could say is that it is ignorance of ourselves and of Christ and of God, it's ignorance that produces pride. Those people out there in the world who are so proud and so arrogant and think they're somebodies when they're absolutely nothing came from the dust of the earth and they're going to return to the dust of the earth. And without God, without Christ, they're absolutely nothing. Their pride is based on ignorance. Only the person who is his um, biblically knowledgeable and applies the knowledge, when you apply the knowledge, that's called wisdom. The person who knows himself and his true nature and the infinite debt that he owes to his creator and his redeemer. Only that type of knowledge keeps a person from pride. Well, the second unconventional thing, you know, it's kind of unconventional to criticize the guests at somebody else's house. But the second thing that the unconventional thing the Lord did that day was to criticize the um, the other guests lack of humility in addition to criticizing their lack of humility was to criticize the hosts' false and selfish hospitality and that's what he does in the next verses twelve to fourteen all right so it says look at verse twelve then said he also to him that bade him that would be now jesus speaking to the chief pharisee here's what he says when thou makest a dinner or a supper Call not thy friends, nor thy brethren, neither thy kinsmen, nor thy rich neighbors, lest they also bid thee again, and a recompense be made thee. What he's saying there is when you show hospitality, now he's not telling us that we can't have our friends and our relatives over for dinner. But he's telling this man, you know, don't just invite people for dinner who you think will reciprocate. You know, because and and will um, lift you up, make you look important and prominent, or somebody because don't invite somebody over because you owe them one. They had you to your house, and now you need to have them back to your house. He said, because if you do it with that kind of motive, and there, you know, you bring over the rich and the important, just so that it can lift you up, then you your recompense is made. That's the reward. That's the only reward you're going to get. Is there a pat on the back? Thank you very much for a nice meal, and now I'll have to have you over. <laughs> Verse 13, But when thou makest a feast, call the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and thou shalt be blessed, for they cannot recompense thee, for thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. Here Jesus was teaching his host and all the other listening guests that real blessings through hospitality come when they invite those from whom they can expect nothing in return. You know, as I said, the Pharisee only invited his peers, other Pharisees and scribes. And, of course, he invited Jesus, I guess, just so that they could try to trip him up. Um, those who show genuine kindness and genuine hospitality toward, uh, are those who show hospitality toward the poor and the blind, the maimed, the, um, the lame because they cannot expect from them to receive anything in return. They may not receive a reward from those they have entertained or helped, because the poor and the blind, you know, they wouldn't be able to reciprocate. They wouldn't be able to have them back to their house. And having them over, you know, that's why they looked down on Jesus. They said, oh, look who he he eats with, the publicans and the prostitutes. So, uh, selfish hospitality for personal benefit receives its reward and that's the only reward it receives is thank you very much for that wonderful dinner and i'll invite you next time but when you genuinely have hospitality where will you be rewarded for it you know if you invite those who can't reciprocate you'll be rewarded in heaven he says at the resurrection of the just uh, there's a lot more in your books that you'll have to read because i um, got to get on to the next section, but that's essentially what he's saying there about hospitality. I want to get into the, um, the next, the next um, parable here where he talks about salvation hindrances. So let's look now at verses 15 to 24. It says, And when one of them that sat at meat with him heard these things now this is an unidentified man we don't know who he was but when he heard Jesus talking about in that, other par- that parable he just gave and then when he heard the Lord talk about the resurrection of the just it made him think of uh, the you know the kingdom so here's what the man says he said blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God that's a little beatitude blessing that this Jewish man gave and so Jesus answered him. It says, Then said he unto him, the man who had just said that. And here's a parable. A certain man made a great supper and bade many. He invited many. Okay, that's the first invitation. And now here's the second invitation, and sent his servant at supper time to say to them that were bidden, that the ones that were already invited. Now this is the second invitation. One one commentator called this the parable of two fools and a hen-pecked man. <laughs> so the servant came and showed his lord these things. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in hither the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. And the servant said, Lord, it is done as thou hast commanded, and yet there is room. <laughs> so glad for that. Uh, By the way, I forgot to tell you that when he said to go out into the streets and lanes, that's the third invitation of the city. That's a third invitation, and it's a local invitation to those in the city, okay? The fourth invitation, when the servant comes back and says there is yet room, appears in verse 23, and it's outside the city. It's out on the highways and hedges. He says, um, unto the servant go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled for I say unto you that none of the, those men which were bidden originally shall taste of my supper all right it's, uh, it was evident by the Lord's use of the uh, figure of a marriage feast um, that this made one of the guests think of this beatitude when he said blessed is he that shall eat in the kingdom of God the jews you see viewed the future kingdom as a time when they especially they uh would share in a great feast with abraham and isaac and jacob and all the old testament prophets and in that kingdom the king their messiah was going to provide bountifully for his subjects and and there would be no famine there would be no tears no poverty no oppression no hunger or want of any kind Now, this particular unnamed guest was apparently very confident that he, especially, you know, a prominent Jew, he was probably a scribe or a Pharisee, that he would one day partake of this great kingdom feast. So Jesus used this man's comment to speak by use of yet another parable about the tragic consequence of having a false sense of security in this parable the parable of the great banquet it's called the parable of the great supper or the parable of the great banquet he taught that participation in the future kingdom is not determined by one's physical relationship to abraham we've all talked about this many times before rather Participation in the future kingdom would be determined by one's response to the invitation extended to participate in the great banquet provided by the master. And, of course, you know that the master here is speaking of God. The Jewish social customs of the day provided the Lord with the basis for this parable. You see, it was the custom of the host and hostess of large, important feasts such as weddings to send invitations to their guests long in advance. Like if you're going to have a wedding for your daughter, you'd send out the invitation maybe even a year or nine months ahead of time. What's the proper thing in our culture? Is it like two months or something? Something like that. Well, when those invitations were accepted, the host would then know um, how many were attending. You know, they would tell the host, yes, I'm planning. Especially when it was given that much in advance, they could mark it down on the... It was kind of like an RSVP. You know, you tell the host, yes, I'm coming. Um, And then it was also the custom, right before the feast, like just, you know, right before the feast, maybe a day for the host to send out out servants to tell each of the guests, you know, them that were bidden, as it says in verse 17, each of the guests who had accepted the invitation, the original invitation, to tell them, okay, the banquet is ready, it's time to come. You should come. That's a command, come to the banquet. So to refuse to attend the banquet after having first accepted And after the host had made all the elaborate, you know, preparations, was not only a great insult to the host, but it was disobedience, because the command was given um, to come, so it was disobedience, and it was also the breaking of a promise. Now, there were exceptions. You know, if you got, if you died before the wedding, obviously you couldn't come, or if you were really ill, you know, there, there were some legitimate excuses. But what we see here is feeble, very feeble, weak, sorry excuses that were given. It says all of the invited guests began to um, really insult the host by making excuses, making excuses. Not having excuses, but making excuses um, for not attending, refusing to attend. The first excuse was what? I have bought a piece of ground and I must needs go see it. I pray thee have me excuse. Now, that's really a feeble excuse. Because who's going to buy a piece of ground without first seeing it? Only a a fool, really. Well, I shouldn't say that. Probably maybe somebody here did. I know my parents did once. (laughs) They had a really a uh, good salesman who talked them into buying a piece of property out in Pahrump, Nevada. This was years ago, in the middle of Death Valley that they had never seen, and they paid for for like 20 years, and then finally went out and saw it and knew they had been scammed. <laughs> but generally, you know, especially in this culture and in this day, somebody was going to buy a piece of property that they had never checked out first. Plus, so that's a weak excuse. The other thing is that banquets generally took place in the evening so why would this man go expect inspect his land in the dark at night you know that that's it's just a foolish feeble excuse uh really what it is is saying you know well my business gets in the way i'm too involved in business to be able to attend it's insulting the host the host went to all the trouble to prepare the food and everything and then they just have you ever had that happen to you Somebody calls you at the last minute, you have a wonderful dinner prepared, and they call, and you know that the excuse is not genuine, they're making an excuse, it's an insult. Um, Second excuse is oh, I had one thing that was funny. The man's priority for real estate was a true indication of his real (laughs) state before God. Well, the second. Uh, excuse was not much better. He said, I have bought five yoke of oxen. Now, that's ten oxen. That's a lot, because they were expensive. He bought those, and now I have to go prove them. It's like buying a new car and then going out and doing a test drive. Uh, You know, it's just weak. It's feeble. He's saying, uh, you know, some people are too involved in their businesses, and some people are too involved in their possessions. And this man was too involved in his possessions. He's not going to go test oxen after he bought them. He's going to test the oxen before he purchases them to make sure that they're healthy and fit to do the work that he wants them to do. Plus, banquets were held in the evening, so why would this guy go and test out his oxen in the dark? You know, it's just a poor excuse. But the third guy had the best excuse of all, didn't he? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he said he'd gotten married, so he flatly—he he wasn't even polite about it. You know, the others say—what um, do they say? At the, I pray thee have me excused. This one just says, therefore, I cannot come. Now, that might sound good. You know, oh, the poor guy, he's on his honeymoon. Of course, you can't expect him to come. But the truth of the matter is that the invitation had been sent out a long time ago, the first one, and he had accepted it. And you see, betrothal periods back in those days, if he was going to marry a wife, he didn't just— grab a wife and run down to a Myrtle Beach chapel somewhere, and wedding chapel he would have had a year engagement to that girl and so he would have known when he accepted the wedding invitation for this supper that he was going to get married and now there is, there is a um, provision for newly married men back in Deuteronomy 24 5 to be excluded from military service for the first year of their marriage which is good, that's wise I think we should have that You know, if a man gets married and then he leaves his wife and he's over in another country, that's not very helpful for the marriage, is it? So that, you know, the Jewish law had a, a provision for that. But it didn't have a provision for not accepting a wedding invitation, especially when he knew that much in advance. And really, he was the rudest of all because he said, I cannot come. Maybe all of these people who refused this invitation after they had originally accepted it thought that, well, that's okay. I just, it's just not convenient to me because I'm more, right now I'm involved in my business or my possessions or my personal relationships, but I'm sure one day he'll invite me again. Wrong. There's no second chance. He said, notice the very last verse, 24, he says that none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. There would be no second invitation. So, having already prepared all kinds of sumptuous foods and desserts and every drinks, and having gone to a great deal of effort to make everything perfect, notice all refused him. It says, all with one consent began to make excuse. So, here's this host with his great big banquet prepared, and he has nobody to attend it. And so, he tells his servant, after receiving word about all these silly excuses, he says, Go out quickly. Why quickly? Because the food's ready. You know, you don't want the food to spoil. You want the food that needs to be hot to be hot. and You want the food that's supposed to be cold to stay cold. Um, So he says, go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in hither the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind, which the good servant did. And when he returned with this crowd of all these outcast kind of people, this servant looked around and he said, there is yet room for more guests. So, and I'm so glad there was yet room. I'm so glad as a Gentile that there was yet room. Because he said to the, then he said to the servant, said to the master of the house, Lord, it is done as thou commandest, and yet there is room. You know, the servant there is Jesus. There was no room for him at an inn, but I am so glad he has room in his house for more and more and more, and for us. So his generous host told him, okay, now, fourth invitation, go out into the highways and the hedges and compel not in the city but out in the highways and the hedges hedges lined little streets lanes and highways were the big streets that would go to gentile countries you know and go out and compel them to come in that my house may be filled now notice that these people not only the um, the poor the maimed the halt and the blind but also those who lived out on the highways and the hedges outside of the city they didn't give any excuses you know they were they were so glad to be invited they were so eager to come and to be feel, freely fed can you imagine maybe being a beggar on a street somewhere or an outcast gentile who had no hope no peace awful gods And to be freely invited to to sup at this great banquet of this master host? Of course, they were so happy to be invited. You know, they were outcasts. They were lonely. They they wanted great fellowship. They wanted to have fellowship with the great master of the house and with other people. Many of these guests were too poor to ever buy a piece of land or to ever purchase. Some of them were blind, so what good would some oxen do to them? And they were handicapped people, so a lot of times handicapped people didn't didn't get married. Nobody wanted to marry them, so they were only too happy to accept such an unexpected and generous offer. I'm just thinking of myself, and I'm so glad the invitation was offered to me because I gladly accepted it. They were more than happy to attend the elegant banquet of the wealthy host's home. Now, of course, as you know, and I'm sure you figured out, Jesus was giving a message to the nation of Israel through this parable. The host and the harable, parable, <laughs> the post and the parable. <laughs> speaks of god the father he's the he's the host he's the master of the house he had extended an invitation to the nation of israel by way of his servants who were the old testament prophets this is the old testament invitation all the prophets invited israel to enter into the kingdom which is symbolized by the great banquet And the nation had responded to that invitation by indicating, Oh, great, yes, when our Messiah comes and banquet time is ready, we will be glad to to come and attend his great banquet in the kingdom. Israel accepted the invitation. They were looking forward to the kingdom. But when banquet time came, when banquet time was at hand and all things were now ready, because in the fullness of time, Christ was born of a virgin. You know, all, everything that needed to be uh, accomplished was accomplished and fulfilled. And he came just as it, it says he would come in the right tribe, the right lineage, the right way, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, and he fulfilled all the messianic prophecies and all things were ready. Uh, the announcement was then given again by God's special servant this time, who was the Lord himself, that, um, that the banquet, you know, at the time was at hand. Come. He invited Israel, come to the banquet. But what do we find that the Jews all, you know, corporately as a nation Did. They gave their feeble excuses as to why they could not now accept the invitation that previously they had acknowledged. Some were too preoccupied with material things. Some were too preoccupied with their status quo in society to bother with taking Christ's invitation seriously. Others were too preoccupied with their business affairs to accept his invitation, and others were just too preoccupied with um, personal affairs. And the result, as we know, was that there was widespread rejection of the Lord's invitation to his kingdom banquet by the nation as a whole, which was primarily due to the misguided leadership of their religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees. Think about it. Their rejection of the servant's invitation really revealed their lack of honor for the host. It revealed their lack of respect For God the Father, they were really insulting the Master. It it shows, as I said before, a lack of obedience because that was a command: "Come to the banquet." You've said you would now come. You are RSVP'd. You know, unless you're on your deathbed, you're expected to come. And it was really an, an attempt to negate His work. You know, if they didn't come, and He had gone to all that trouble to prepare everything perfectly, and Jesus Christ is the Great Supper Himself, He provides His provision. Complete provision for the sinner. They would, like, negate his work. Well, I did all that, and nobody's coming. So, since the banquet had been prepared, the host extended an invitation to those who would have considered themselves most unworthy to be included. We know that while the religious rulers of Christ's day were making their excuses about his invitation, the common people, the poor those who understood their own spiritual poverty, the maimed, the, uh, the crippled, the blind, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the uh, Samaritans, um, the Pereans, even a Syrophoenician woman, a Roman centurion, um, the Gadarene demoniac. All of the outcasts of society, they were hearing him and they were responding gladly. And so they came. And then within a few short years of the Lord's death, the gospel invitation was being extended to others. This is the fourth invitation to those who inhabited the um, outside of the city, the highways and the hedges, which symbolizes those outside the, the borders of Judaism. In other words, you and I, the Gentiles who, because of God's wonderful grace, would enter into the marriage supper of the Lamb. The many from among the Gentile people who responded in the affirmative to the invitation would fill the banquet hall, and this would please the host. And then Jesus ended the parable by saying that those who had been invited, Israel, but had rejected his invitation would be excluded from his kingdom. Remember how he just said in our lesson last week over in Luke 13, verse 28, you know, many will come from the north and the south and the east and the west, and they will sit with Abraham and, and Jacob and Isaac while you yourselves will be thrust out. So they'd be excluded. They would not taste of his supper. No, there would not be a second invitation. So we see it was Not the invitation that guaranteed the blessing, it was the response to the invitation that guaranteed the blessing. And of course you know that this parable can be applied to lost people, not only Israel, but it can be applied to lost people today. This provision makes up what we call the gospel or the good news. The gospel tells us of the full supply of everything that the unsaved person needs in order to be saved. There's absolutely nothing that the sin-laden, weary, hungry, helpless, empty heart and soul of man can wish for or want or desire that is not provided in rich abundance in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is the great supper. He is the bread of life. He is the living water. He is everything that the spiritually hungry and thirsty soul can ever need. And what is his invitation? To the lost of the world. Come unto me. Come unto me. So and anyway, that's our lesson. I hope I did I did I went over time. Sorry about that. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the invitation come unto you. If any man thirst, come unto me, whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. Thank you for that invitation. Thank you for going out into the streets and the lanes of the, of our cities um, to, to reach us, Lord, those who were the outcasts. Thank you that you included the Gentiles. Thank you that you you um, still had room and that you're pleased to have us be with you, and Lord, I pray that um, that each of us would truly work on this issue of humility. Lord, teach us more every day how to die to self. How teach us how to be um, comparing ourselves, measuring ourselves always against Christ and not against one another. Because when we do that, we really see ourselves as we are, and and that makes us humble. And we want to be humble. We want to be genuinely humble. Lord, we love you. Thank you for your people. I pray that you'd bless every one of them. Use them this week. Revive them. Help us all to be revived in our hearts, to have that fire for you, to want to not only um, be living sacrifices for you, which is our reasonable service, but to serve you with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. Now we just ask that you um, go with us in Jesus' name. Amen.